The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Good morning and welcome to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Donald Martin, editor of The Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we discuss the business headlines, inspirational success stories and brilliant advice from the board you can't afford. And we're joined this morning by a Top Drawer special guest, Jim McGonigal, owner of Top Drawer UK, Scotland's leading furniture and home decor showroom. Don't forget our dynamic duo, Tom and Willie, are here to offer support for local business. So if you want advice or have a business question for our dynamic duo, please email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Gentlemen, lots of business stories again grabbing the headlines. One that will increasingly take centre stage in the weeks to come is furlough, or should I say the end of it. Should we be worried, Tom? Well, um, when the pandemic first hit, I remember speaking to Willie on the phone and we were both very worried about unemployment and how this was going to um, affect the whole of the UK, um, not not only Scotland. And um, I actually thought the furlough scheme was a really positive, bold initiative by Rishi Sunak. And speaking to businesses during the pandemic, furlough has really helped stave off a big layoff, Willie. And now as we go through it, we hear that there's more vacancies than there is unemployment. So I'm not sure what's going to happen when furlough finishes. But, you know, we've talked about it in previous shows. We've got 100,000 HGV drivers short. We've got EU nationals leaving UK employment because of Brexit. So I think there's some profound structural changes happening in the UK and Scottish employment markets that are with us forever. And maybe it's not going to be such a hard landing coming out of furlough that I first thought. What do you think, Willie? Well, there's absolutely no doubt that the furlough scheme has saved hundreds of thousands of businesses going bust. No doubt about that whatsoever. So you'd have to say it was a great idea. My worry now is is that, as Tom said, although it said there's there's 1.6 million vacancies, I believe, in the UK at the moment, I think a lot of people have got used to sitting about the house. And I I wondered when Richie Sunak gave the offer last year, halfway through furlough, about you could go back to work and we could still give you some money and I would encourage you. And I thought, why are you doing that for people to go back to their work? I think I now realise why, because people have got used to, to furlough money. I am aware of people who, if they were back at work at the moment, who would be making a lot more money than they're getting from furlough, but they're happy enjoying the good weather, sitting in the garden, and they're in no rush to go back to their work. So I believe that when when we believe that we're right out of COVID, and I still think that's got a bit to go, maybe six months hopefully, before we can really get back to some sense of normality, I think that then we'll also get the real effects of Brexit. And I think no matter what, we'll go back to a shortage. And unfortunately, I'm still of the opinion we will end up with more people unemployed after COVID than we were before. There's estimates that uh, it could be 15% of the total on furlough 
could ultimately lose their jobs. So that's about 280,000 people. Should we be worried, Tom? So, I, of, of course you're worried when these things happen, but I, as I said, these profound changes are happening in the UK and Scottish labour markets. Um, people maybe don't want to go back to humdrum, tedious jobs, and technology will probably take care of that, but that's why we need to up our game in training, development, our education programmes so that we can help the workforce get into better jobs um, where they do want to go and go and work. I, I would fully understand people are take, making lifestyle ch choices and if you're going back to a job that's tedious and it's got long hours and you're in minimum wage, I understand. So therefore, we need to up the training, the apprenticeships, which we bang on about in this show and Willie's the champion of that. Um, I think we've got to up our game in that. People have called for furlough to maybe still be extended for certain sectors. Should that happen, particularly if it's in travel and hospitality, that's probably going to take you, estimate, maybe another six months of uh, the pandemic before things are back to normal. Should we be doing something along those, those lines? I think if still because of government regulation that your business is affected, I think you're quite entitled to, to look for help. So I think it will take a while for the travel industry, the hospitality industry, and no one should have any complaints about businesses getting help from the government. It's sectoral help. Um, I think if all businesses uh, are allowed to get back to normal, then I don't see any need for furloughing at all. But I think one of the big things that's going to uh, cause great changes is that nothing is going to go back to the way it was. So, in my own example, you know, if, if I've got 800 people working in our building and if we end up two weeks on, two weeks off, like forevermore, think what that does for buses, taxis, the local hamburger stall, everything will be affected by this. And this is where I think that the, the new way, as I'm calling it, going forward, I think um, that we have to do something. We'll have to come up with good ideas to get people into other employment because there's no doubt there'll be, I, I think there'll be over 100,000 vacancies in the hospitality industry. You know, no doubt about that whatsoever. And I think that could be conservative. Tom, is there a danger of the loss of supply side capacity by removing support too early? Well, there, there always is, and I really agree with Willie's point, that if it's no fault of the business, you know, like we heard in a previous show from the lady from Little's Chauffeur Drive, you know, the government said, close. <laughs> now, my God, I, I can't imagine how that feels, Willie. That must be terrible. Your life's work in front of you and you're told to close. So that's why the furlough was important. But we're now emerging from it. And there's new opportunities. So rather than call it furlough, I would call it a transition to a better place. Transition to a better job, training help, education help, and let's let's transition to a better place. Moving topics now, that mighty fine newspaper, The Herald, reported that 800 retail stores closed in Scotland and just 344 opened between January and June this year. I don't know why the pair of you are laughing. It is a mighty fine It's paper. a mighty fine paper, yes, and I'm a come subscriber come on, come on. to your online are, version. I know you are. Anyway, the pace of closures faster than here was faster than across the UK and up on the same period in 2020. 
Should we be concerned? Is it going to get better or worse? I think we should be concerned. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. And what I mean by getting better, I think a lot of the shops and units will be converted to houses, to stores, whatever. But I think the the retailing in the high street um, will, will change dramatically. And I think COVID has accelerated that process. And you can see now when, when you're in the town centre, whether it's a lack of investment or not, but a lot of the existing shops, we've, we've heard that, you know, look tired. And uh, it it doesn't look as if we're, you know, that we're, that, I don't want to say caring, but the, 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 the city centre looks as if it needs a bit of TLC, right, um, altogether. So I think in order to attract people into the city centre, into the retail units that are there, that we need to make it a bit nicer. Uh, but also, I think that online has obviously affected you know, the the demand. If you think about what's happened, even even before you know the whole online boom, Glasgow city centre in in relation to retail has been shrinking for twenty five years. You know, you would be busy at the further tip of Sucky Hall Street, right down to Trongate. You know, Glasgow city centre now. You know, if you wanted a prime spot. You're looking at maybe Buchanan Street where you have to pay a premium and, and maybe a bit, you know, along Argyll Street and, and maybe a wee bit still at the top of Circuit Hill Street. But outside of that, you know, it's, it's shrinking. So, I mean, there are profound changes happening in the retail as well. But we've got to remember they're customer-driven. So everybody says, oh, I'd, I'd hated it when Woolworths departed the high street. Did you ever shop in Woolworths? Oh, well, no for a while. Exactly. You found a better way. And through the pandemic, it has accelerated, as Willie said, what was happening anyway. This was a trend that, that was happening, but the pandemic gave it rocket fuel. And um, there will be entrepreneurs, though, who come up with formats for high streets, and that's why it's got to be more affordable, We've got to sort the rates. We must sort the rates. They are stifling enterprise on the high street. There needs to be a better way for that. And as we've talked about in this show, we need to use the pandemic as a way to get to a better place. So yes, retail on the high street is changing. Yes, online is here to stay, 100%. But there will be an entrepreneurial answer to the high street and we've just got to make it affordable for people to try new formats we may go full circle you know with all the green issues and as we're marching towards being greener and greener maybe some of them will go back to being stables <laughs> <laughs> on a positive the global entrepreneurship monitor estimates that around 247,000 people in Scotland were involved in early stage businesses in 2020 in spite of the impact of COVID-19. Interestingly, they suggest that includes 13% of Scots aged 18 to 24. Are you surprised, Tom, or are there any key advice for those setting out? No, I'm, I'm not surprised at all. Our centre at Strathclyde University um, does all the, res the research for Scotland. Before, we didn't have a Scottish um, angle in this, Scottish data, but now we do through the centre at Strathclyde University. And um, 
So this is this is what we've talked about in the show. Because of the pandemic, there's great change. Who can take advantage of that change is entrepreneurial companies. Smaller companies with flatter management structures who are closer to their customer can see the opportunity, can seize the opportunity. And I would just say that there's never been a better time to start your own business. Now, that might seem counterintuitive, but I absolutely believe it. In Scotland today, there's never been more support if you wanted to start your business. And there's never been a better time because there's never been more change. Where there's change, there's opportunity. And that's why this show is so important as we get behind people who want to start and grow their business. Well, the thing that took me uh, back a bit was it was youngsters. You know, that that's a high number. What What is it about today's younger generation that gives them that mindset? So the, the reason why youngsters are so important is one, one thing, which is technology. So youngsters today, it's just second nature for them to understand the new ways of marketing, whether it be TikTok or Twitter or whatever the newest thing is, which I won't know. But that's their bread and butter. So youngsters, for maybe maybe the first time, know more than those who have gone before them about the way to use technology in business. I think it's brilliant and I would really encourage this. And that's why, um, I mean, you've heard me talk about one of our best investments is the Hutt Group. The average age of the person there is 26 years old, you know, and there are now over 12,000 people work at the Hutt Group. And that was a startup less about 10 years ago. I, I think um, the correlation between these new young startups and lockdown is that a lot of people have been sitting reflecting about, I'm wanting to go back to that mundane job. And I think a lot of people have decided during that time when they've had a lot of time to think um, that they want to try something new. And I'll tell you, I believe that this will be one of the biggest problems why we're so many chefs short. Because, I mean, for me, a chef's a vacation. You know, to work in a kitchen all the hours under the sun, uh, you're working when everyone else is out enjoying themselves, you're in the, you know, in the summer, you're, you know, you're sweating, all this. I, I think a lot of people have just decided during this time when they've had time to think, relax, they've decided, I'm going to so- try something new. And a lot of people, especially younger people now, have decided maybe this is the time to try and be my own boss. Obviously, this show's here to provide support and guidance, but is there any other avenues that youngsters setting out should, say, look to to help build their business? Yeah, I mean, we've had Evelyn on from Scottish Edge, which really helps. Um, every new business thinks it's only money they need, and every business is wrong <laughs> <laughs> because they need the support. And I absolutely believe this, and I've studied this for a long time, and when I used to travel... I would go and find out Scotland's support mechanism. So entrepreneurs supporting other entrepreneurs, I think is the best in the world. I see people who just want other entrepreneurs to succeed. If I look at America, you know, other entrepreneurs will rip your throat out. In Scotland, other entrepreneurs want to support you, help you. This peer-to-peer support is Scotland's secret sauce, and I'm really proud of it. 
Really? Yeah, again, I'm going to mention the man I've mentioned about three times in the last couple of programmes. Again, to the Minister, Mr Swinney, who, to be fair, Tom, has been a great supporter of entrepreneurs, especially young entrepreneurs. He's, I mean, John Swinney was was the man who actually got behind Edge in its very early stages. So I would just say to him, if it helps in any way, if, if, if John is going to be in charge of the economic recovery after COVID, again, try and couple all this together, the young entrepreneurs, um, the, the apprenticeship scheme, anything that we can do that is you know married to uh, green issues. I think there's a fantastic opportunity here, especially people are worried it's the young people that are going to lose out more than anyone else, you know, post-COVID. And I think there is plenty of ways here that we can make sure that Scotland is ahead of the game with these issues. Right. The boss of a FTSE 100, uh, well, the boss of FTSE 100 giant Melrose industry, Simon Peckham, has urged the government not to intervene in a flurry of potential US takeovers uh, of UK firms saying the UK must protect its reputation as an open trading economy. Do you agree, Tom? Well, um, I'm against um, barriers which stop free trade or um, if someone's got a better idea and wants to buy another company, then fine. Um, I reckon um, in certain industries need to be protected if they're in the national Interest, you know, if if they're in the defence sector, etc. But by and large, I'm against protectionism. I think it brings us all down at the end of the day. All I would say is the best way to stop being taken over is do a better job. Willie, yeah, I would totally agree with that. Uh, uh, everything that Tom said there, you know, obviously the cyber stuff we have to protect. I know so many people were up in arms about one of the companies going to be taken over by the Chinese, and they were saying it was an absolute risk uh, to the nation so I think that yes that, but in day to day business in the sectors that are not affected by that I think that intervention is not a good idea we have to be open for free trade and, and also what we don't want is is that there's a lot of good companies here that may want to buy businesses in America right and it'll be a two way thing so for me no I totally agree with what Thomas said and there's speculation there's a lot of money out there just ready to invest is that good or bad, or is it a case of going to take over companies and asset strip? So the big thing that's that, that's happened in the finance sector um, since the financial crisis is the movement into the unregulated banking sector. This is the private equity firms, and when they raise funds, it's called dry powder. And there is more dry powder sitting in the big private equity firms now than in the history of the world. Um, literally almost a trillion dollars. Um, is private equity good or bad? Depends on your point of view. Depends if you're buying or selling, Donald. <laughs> yeah, I, I would just say yes, there's never been, never been as much cash freely available. And, uh, and the thing that worries me about the financial sectors is, is that they always come up with a new way or a new scheme or a new idea as to how to get cash flowing. I mean, the latest one being SPACs. So they've set up these new special purpose vehicles for private companies to become limited overnight. And I think that we just have to be careful that we're not throwing money at things where we end up creating another crisis. Now in the latest of our brilliant series on Great Scots, 
we tell the story of one company that certainly has had phenomenal success, the Weir Group. The Weir Group PLC is one of the United Kingdom's oldest engineering firms and the last of the great Scottish engineering firms to remain an independent company in the 21st century. The Glasgow-based company has been a leading name in the global market for industrial pumps, as well as a major manufacturer of valves, related industrial equipment such as turbines, cyclones, mill liners and compressors. The company was founded in 1871 by James Weir and his younger brother George, who were also the great-grandsons of famed Scottish poet Robert Burns. James Weir went to sea at the age of 23, serving as a marine engineer, but in 1871 returned to shore to set up his own business, initially in Liverpool and then in Glasgow. Joined by George Weir, the firm initially served the local shipyards as engineering consultants, developing new equipment and improvements for the shipbuilding industry. Over the next decade, J and J Weir Limited succeeded in developing and patenting a number of inventions, such as the patented feed heater, which helped solve the problem of marine boiler corrosion, and the direct-acting feed pump, and the patented evaporator for the newly designed triple expansion engine. Many of Weir's patents from this era remained essential and standard equipment on ships around the world. With its lineup of patents, the Weir Group decided to launch its own manufacturing operations in the mid-1880s. In 1886, the company purchased a small site in Cathcart and set up a small workshop, foundry and smithy. The company was quickly successful and played a major role in the technological advancement of the Scottish shipbuilding industry and in the development of modern shipping vessels in general. The Weir Group grew rapidly, expanding its production facilities from the original single building to a massive, 13-acre site that became one of the jewels in the Scottish industrial crown. Weir has long been an internationally focused group and currently has subsidiaries in the United States, Canada, the Netherlands, France, India, China, Chile, South Africa, Italy and Australia. The United Kingdom accounts for just 14% of the company's total turnover. On the Go Radio Business Show. An iconic Scottish business. Yeah, I mean, another great Scottish success story. And um, I love that um, the shale gas in America, the technology of a Scottish company, helped America become self-sufficient in energy once again. Weir was at the heart of that. Really? Yeah, I've got a great story about Weir's... Um, to, to just show how ahead of the game they were. In 1983, I was working in the Middle East, in Abu Dhabi, and I was working in an, uh, <clears throat> an oil installation in the middle of the desert, uh, and one of the pumps was down, uh, and all the pump said was the weird group, blah, 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 here's the model number, here's the serial number. So the, the head of engineering said to me, Willie, when you go home and leave can you phone this company and try and buy us a pump and order it and get them to ship it to us because I believe they're based in Glasgow. I said, no problem. I'll not forget this. So I got home, I got Weir's number and I phoned this lady, answered the phone and I said to her, I'm, I'm trying to purchase a pump and she says, I'll put you through to the you know, the procurement. Anyway, so they put me through to this uh, and I said to the lady, morning, she says, I says, listen, I'm trying to buy a pump. She says, okay, do you have the model and serial number? And I says, yes. Oh, she said to me, where are you phoning from? I says, Rulligan. She says, fine. I said, it's a so-and-so, 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 here's the model number. She says, no, you, mu you must be mistaken. You'll have to check the number again. That's the wrong number. So I said, no, 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 this is definitely the right number. I've got a, I've got a picture of the plate. 
He says, no, no, it can't be. That pump's actually in Abu Dhabi. I says, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how ahead of the game they were. But, you know, obviously living in the south side of Glasgow, I was brought up with wheels and I couldn't imagine that you start off from one unit and you end up in a 13-acre site for a for a factory. But but then again, you know, we talk about opportunities. We talked earlier about, you know, brick factories and try to build insulation factories. The, the timing of wheels being set up at the timing of the boom in the Clyde, uh, you know, both goes hand in hand, you know. So again, let's take the learning from these great, iconic Scottish businesses and try and be as clever as them and as bold as them today so that we can beat everything that's been going on at the moment. And Tom, from that early beginnings to now, the UK is only 14% of their turnover. That's incredible, isn't it? I was amazed when um, on that piece they reeled off the countries. Mm -hmm. um, but again, pioneering Scots going round the world, peddling their wares, I love it. Yeah. Coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Jim McGonigal, owner of the Top Drawer UK. And don't forget, if you want to be part of the board you can't afford, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Inspiring advice for Scottish business. Welcome back as we are joined by Jim McGonigal, owner of Top Drawer UK, Scotland's leading furniture and home decor business. If you want business advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, you can email us at gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Jim, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, sitting here with Jack and Victor. I've been looking forward to it. I've listened oh, to every episode. Oh, I think this Get is going to be first. This is going to be good. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about you and your business, please. Well, we started a family business um, seven years ago. So me, my wife, decided that we would like a business that was a long-term business and it was for the family. My daughter works in the business, my son works in the business, my nephew works in the business, my Two sister-in-laws work in the business. One of our employees who's in the business we've known and worked with for 20-odd years. So a lot of people say they've got a family business, but in our case, we really have got a family business. You know, it's easy to see how many staff we have who's not family, and I think that's only about three or four. So we, we came up with an idea. We worked away with one store. We tried the concept. And, you know, we found something that we loved. We had a passion for it. We came from a fashion background. So we took all the, the traits and things that we were good at and the things that we weren't good at in the fashion business and put them into a furniture business. Um, and one of the, the key things we, we, we had in it was to make sure that there was something in the store for anybody who walked in. You know, you'll find something at a pound or you'll find something at £10,000. And and that was our, our plan behind it. But but the, the fashion background has got a big part of it. Um, as we get bigger and bigger suppliers came to, to deal with us, they found the way we structured the business and the way that we displayed the product was strange to the old-fashioned stuffy furniture stores, which we're a bit used to um, in, in Scotland just now. So... You know, it was interesting, the twist that we put on it. So what is that twist? The twist is always have the right product at the right time, but make sure that we've got the latest style, the latest fashion, which 
to be honest, a big part of that is is my daughter's influence, um, which she's just on trained and knows knows where the the products are coming from. Then we started working with suppliers to say to them, look, you know, we sell X amount of your product, but we've got some product in our minds that we would like you to start to make. And we started helping suppliers produce product that we were looking for. And we didn't have a problem with them selling it to other people as long as it wasn't right round the corner from us. So we started getting our influence into the product and that's a part of the business going forward which is just going to grow and grow. So was it a success from the outset? No, no, I don't think any any business. <laughs> you have a few challenges with the Yeah, there was certainly some challenges. There was some tough times. Um, to be quite honest, there was a few tears because we struggled at first. Um, so it was me, and my wife at first, and I hadn't worked with my wife for an awful long time. We, we did in the past, <laughs> so there was challenges there. You brought the the wee small debates that annoyed you at work back home and we had some challenging times there, you know, to be honest. So uh, we got over them. Um, but, you know, we had great friends round about us who supported us in the early days with the business um, and that was a big support. Jim, it's Sorry. great to see you. <laughs> right. You're great to be well. here. And um, you and I have worked together in the past. I loved your. You're a real entrepreneur who there's problems come up every day and you just solve them. Yeah. So, but can I take you back? Because I'm I'm intrigued with how people end up where they are. I love the journey. So, you were born in the Milton? Sunny Milton. And so, what was in your background? Because I, I, I know you and I used to talk about this yeah. when, we, when we worked together, but I'm fascinated because I do believe anybody can be a bit more entrepreneurial. But what was in your background that, got you to where you are today it's, it's something that I've put a lot of thought into over the years and me and you have spoken about it over the years a lot you know um, your history with your dad and the grocers and I know every story there is so it was a similar to us in, in our family um, my dad was an upholsterer he got made redundant um, he worked in a, a company called Dykes in Glasgow who's a big big furniture manufacturer um, quite strange that we've ended up in the furniture business so when he got made redundant he says I'm starting my own business and at that time in the Milton we don't know anybody who had their own business um, so off he went he started it he opened a very small workshop and he started getting customers and he worked away at it but then we would go and help him and you know I can tell you great stories about going to see customers in their houses which I'll just have to tell anyway so <laughs> the the thing that I learned was when you went into someone's house the lady didn't want her sofa she wanted her sofa covered and she was looking forward to that but the man didn't want to buy a new sofa and he didn't want it recovered so my dad had this great wee trick he done was getting him and the man so he would start talking about the football, you know. If he had a wee sign that the man was a Celtic supporter, he was halfway there. So he worked on the actual male member of the, the house first. And then he would say, right, Jim, go and get the books out the van. Jim, bring the drill on books on the left-hand side. So that was the real top-end books. So he was, he was comfortable. He knew he was going to get an order. And he would give him the price, right? Um, when can you do it? Well, I'm awful, awful busy just now, but I'll try and fit you in. And I used to listen to this and I'm saying, he's no awful busy. <laughs> but see, the next day he phoned up and says, I've got a wee slot, I can come and pick up that sofa this afternoon. So there we were after school, 
away and picked up the sofa and he'd done that for years and years and years he retired he's he's, he's still doing wee, wee jobs to this day um, in his garage he'll do wee bits and pieces for people but that's that's where we picked it, picked it up from and a good pal of mine Jerry Boner who's got a, a good business a good cleaning business he was my friend and, and neighbour Jerry will even talk to this day saying your dad was the only person we knew at the business you know and the, the, the old van used to say P. McGonagall and Sons at Pulsers, you know, and and that was that was the wee bits you picked up along along the road, you know. So do you do you think Jim it's really important? I mean, I'd, I'd be fascinated to know what made your dad go and do it because, as I say, it wasn't normal in in your community to be self-employed. Even I, I think it was easy for my dad. It was he had five mouths to feed, um, and I think that's where where he got that for. From my mum was not for it at all. She was totally against it, but he would always done homers, so he was halfway <laughs> there anyway. So I, I really think it, he took that step. And were they cash homers, Jim? I would believe that they days they would be <laughs> <laughs> nothing but Jim. Your dad would struggle today. You know, imagine your dad try to work at one of these, these terminals where you take credit cards. Credit really cards? Work. No, I don't think he would have liked that at all. You know. So do you think you're? A great salesman like your dad. What's your well? They see, they see. I'm turning into him. I'm morphing into him more and more, um, which I don't have a problem with. No, definitely not. But yeah. um, it's it's fantastic to hear. We we heard in a previous show about family business and how important it is to Scotland. And I don't think it's something that's talked about enough. And the lady from the Little's chauffeur drive came out with statistics, which blew Billy and I away, actually, mm -hmm. because the importance of family business to the Scottish economy is so important. And you and Willie are the epitome of that, actually. I think um, anybody starting a business is to think about it, but, you know, don't hesitate in doing it. You know, look at your sector you're in, look at who your competitor is and if it's if it keeps annoying you when you're getting the shower in the morning that's what you're thinking of, just go and do it. The worst thing you can do is make a few mistakes along the way, you'll have some tearful nights, you'll have some sleepless nights, but anybody, go and do it. What's been your greatest success in your own business journey? The thing that you're most proud of? I think the most proud was get my picture taken with my granddaughter in my new store um, outside the store which was oh. just just you know that's to be known him I think in about 10 years I think he'll be most proud of that he's handed it over to the next yeah. generation when his daughter and his son are running the business and the good thing about knowing them you know like, like Tom we know Jim for many many years great friends but I think that to see his daughter now making the business thrive and grow and his son working really, really hard. I think he'll sit back in 10 years and think, well, this was all worthwhile. And he's, and he's good lady as well. Obviously, she's a major part of the, of the business. Yeah, I think she keeps his feet in the ground. Certainly, <laughs> she certainly does. She certainly does. Just, just like the rest of us, Willie. Aye, aye. So you've had some good times where it must have been difficult, surely, during the pandemic, or did you find it an opportunity? Well... Then when we, when we locked the store for the first time, I went home and I was a bit down, which is not very often I get down, but I was a bit like, when am I opening that back up or am I going to open it back up? So 
in uh, our Sunday dinners, which is a bit like if you watch the series Blue Bloods, um, yeah. when they get together <laughs> on a Sunday, we don't talk about crime, <laughs> we talk about furniture, we talk about business. So round the Sunday dinner table, we say, right, let's phone every customer who's got an order placed with us. Because customers are going to place an order and they'll pay a deposit and they'll be six or seven weeks waiting their product coming in or getting manufactured. And I says... I don't want any customer to think that we are uh, could go bust. We are holding their money, so we phoned every customer. It took us three days to do it, but we sat there. We got the list, and I just sat there and phoned every single person. And it was a wee, just quick conversation to say, "Listen, I'm, I'm, you know, we're, we're locked down. Just to let you know that behind the scenes, we're still organising, getting your stuff." when we can get the stuff and just to let you know that everything's fine and you know your deposit will be safe and everything else and the feedback for the customers was absolutely fantastic we were getting emails we were getting texts look thanks for phoning no one else has done that you know so we've done that and then the next thing I say is right let's phone every single supplier that we've got an outstanding bill with because the business had stopped taking money so and our list came out it was it wasn't the biggest of lists because we worked with a very sh short uh, supply uh, list of customers. Phoned every customer and says right every supplier this is where I am. Here's what we can do and we give them X amount of money and you'll need to work close with us. And that has been fantastic for the business because you've built relationships with suppliers. They appreciated the phone call because they were on the same boat as well. So that was that. And then we says, right, what do we do now? So my wife, my daughter says, let's get social media working. We spend an awful lot of time on it. Um, we're very good at it. Um, and then we started saying, right, we'll do Zoom calls. So that was that was us. We were in the customer's house. What is it you're looking for? I'm looking for a new table. I'm wow. looking for a bit of help. What will I do with this dining room? And we just worked away at that. And that was... That was that was really successful. Um, it was something that, that that carried on once we opened back up. That the demand was the customers are back in the store. So we we sat back and says we can't let the virus beat me. How do we keep the business going? How do we take money? And we just come up with all the ideas and we done it. I think you've just um, made the point about every problem that comes your way, you just solve it. Got to and solve that's it. That's what great entrepreneurs do. Got to solve it. And the yeah. communication, Jim between your customers, your suppliers, obviously your workforce is your family so you can get the Sunday dinner and yeah. um, thrash it out <laughs> round the table. But yeah. brilliant, brilliant story. He's, since the programme started, he's telling me now that every time they get together once a month for a Sunday dinner, it turns into a board meeting. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> there has been a lot of that. <laughs> Coming up, we'll be back with more from our special guest, Jim McGonigal, Plus, the board you can't afford where you can put your business questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. By business for business. Welcome back as we are joined by Jim McGonigal, owner of Top Drawer UK, Scotland's leading furniture and home decor business. Tom and Willie have talked about some of the supply chain issues. Yeah. Has that impacted on your business? It's a very big impact on the furniture business. Um, so the furniture is a bulky product. If you take a, a sofa, um, you take a, a, a chest, the furniture, it's bulky stuff. So the problems we're going to 
encourage over now in Christmas is just the price of the containers. So last year, a container was sitting at £3,000 from China. Just now, we're sitting at about £17,500 from China. Wow. If it goes up any further, which there is chat in the industry that it will go up further and hits the 20 plus, 23 to 25, the suppliers will just won't bring the stuff in. Because the average price of a container for the goods in them sits about twenty four to 25000 for a 40-feet container. So I was at a show, um, I'm just back for Birmingham, which is a big furniture show we're doing it there. And, you know, it was very, very positive. The buyers were out buying. Um, anybody who'd sitting there with stock were obviously getting good, good orders. But everybody was talking about prices going up. So... We, as a family, don't want to just pass on that to the end user because it's it's not what we're about. So we've got a couple of options. The supplier will have to take a wee hit. We'll have to take a wee hit and pass a smaller amount on to the customer. Um, but the opportunity for UK manufacturers to come out now and say, I'm going to start manufacturing is huge because the container price is not going to go back to where it was. I think can listen to all the experts, some of the guys I was talking to import 40,000 containers a day they could bring in, you know. So the opportunity is for people to manufacture in the UK. So, so Jim, I, I don't know anything about the furniture business. The only thing I ever thought was supply chains. Why, why can't you pick it and have it delivered in a week? Is that just nonsense or with... Near East or even UK manufacturing, you could turn that waiting time on its head. And is that what the customer wants? Oh, the customer, um, when they come in to buy something, if you say to the customer, I'll get you in eight weeks, they're not interested. The customer wants their product two to three weeks. So you you see this as an opportunity? Opportunity, great opportunity, you know, to the manufacturers in Turkey who are going to truck the the products in are sitting saying, come and speak to us. Um, Where they were a wee bit dearer in the past, they're not dearer now. They are not dearer at all. Um, Poland, we've got a supplier in Poland that we went and spoke to um, who's working on making the sofas. Um, He'll truck them in. We'll put our own twister, our own colours, um, and that's something we're going to work on. Whereas before he was maybe a bit dearer, but with the shipping cost, he's coming in right on the money. So, yeah. you know, great. So, Jim, you mentioned earlier about the containers and the problems with containers and how they're recycled and what have you. One of the other problems, I believe, with containers is, is that the whole steel problem. Yes. Right? So, three years ago, the World Trade Organization, the US government, the European Union, the UK government all wanted to take China to court for subsidising steel throughout the world. Yeah. Right. But what's happened now because of the requirement for steel in China, there's no steel coming out of China. They're not even... So they're also saying, you would just think, let's go and make loads more containers. They're actually grabbing all the steel there is to build buildings. Yeah. Right? So they're not actually building the same amount of containers that they were doing post-COVID. The, there has been new containers that have been getting built in, into the, the marketplace but we don't have a shortage of containers. They're just all in the wrong places. Why is that? The PPE get red flagged up around the world. Every government in the world had to go and buy stuff at the pandemic and they get the green light to be shipped first for obvious reasons. But a lot of the containers went to America, 
They've got loads of containers sitting in America that never went back. They're sitting there full of stuff. We've got containers in uh, the docks in England full of PPE and the containers have not went back into the system. So, you know, the shipping went up because boats were going back empty to get containers full to go back into Europe and the rest of the world. So there's a huge problem of the containers not getting recycled back into the, the shipping lanes that you need them in. An average container in its lifespan will do six or seven trips um, around the world and it'll come back and it'll end up back in China and it'll get regenerated back into the shipping stock. You said, uh, Tom said earlier, you're a problem solver, you just get things done. So what <laughs> what what should we do to get ourselves out of this you know, pandemic and recover to the levels or even exceed the levels of 2019? I think the consumer is going to change their whole lifestyle um, since the pandemic. Um, I don't see us going out to socialise the way we used to at a certain age. Um, there's a whole thing going on now that you're, gardens to be as good as what your inside your house is. The garden furniture business is going through the roof. So folks' lifestyles is going to change. Um, they're going to spend more time in their houses. They're going to spend more time doing up their houses. And they want to have lovely doors that open up into their garden. The gardens is good to go and sit out there with their friends will come up and they'll socialise. But I know these things are an opportunity. For us, it's, it's great because... People want to do up their houses, they'll come to us and they'll buy it. The other thing that's huge opportunity is for the government at this point to help the businesses who manufacture. So if there's one thing I could say to the government is please, please go and help the manufacturers who manufacture product in the UK to help them with rates, help them build new factories, help them get the right machinery. The factories in China have got amazing factories, amazing equipment, but the price of these containers will not come down. So the consumer in the UK is going to always have to live with this price is going up. But if we could get the manufacturing here, it would be absolutely wonderful. I would love to buy my furniture from England, for Scotland, for a factory in Ayrshire. You know, it'd be great. That's the big opportunity. So Jim... The one bit of advice I would give is not to be a manufacturer. I have no right. chance of being a manufacturer. <laughs> right. but I totally agree with you. We've we've touched on it, you know, in yep. this program, other programs. That there's that there'll never be a better time for homegrown. Yes. Never, because and you know, as an island, that we should help to be more and more self-sufficient. You know, we've got a lot of natural resource here. You know, we've got great timber. We've got everything that we would need. So I, I think you're right. We've been talking about it in the construction industry about making our own brick. You know, making our own timber again. Yeah. Insulation. We don't have an insulation manufacturer. I don't think. Yeah. No, not have a huge uh, insulation manufacturer in Scotland. We buy loads of stuff from Ireland. So I think you're right that this is a you know. Like, the same that people have been talking about in America for the past four or five years is, you know, if you, if you can buy local. And I think a lot of people, Jim, when they looked at it, when you looked at all the the various things that you had to do with dealing with China, like, you know, paying up front, waiting for the shipping, all of that stuff, when you worked out about how much it was to buy local, it wasn't that much. And I think that the consumer was happy to pay that bit more, you know, if you had your own flag on it. Oh, for us, if we could find the the local manufacturers get up to speed and give me the quality that I'm looking for. Um, for our cash flow, it's huge. You know, we bring in stock for abroad, we have to pay for it. 
um, when it leaves the factory, it's paid for. They have to pay my ship, they have to pay my duty. So they have to pay my transport to get it here. So if I've got a factory in the UK who I can pay in 14 days or 30 days, whatever we agree with the terms, we're... We're uh, we're loving that. We're loving that opportunity. And also, Jim, you've got the big, you know, that you've got the the, the green targets as well. This is so, going to help greatly with the whole. We've got the new greens in government um, in Scotland, so maybe for them, go and help some manufacturers, and uh, you'll save a lot of ships sailing around the world. So go and help produce goods, Jim. Am I, am I right in thinking when? Um, DFS started as a pal of mine, Graham Kirkham, yeah. who was born in a, in a mining village. Yeah. So he he came up there and he was a great advocate of making his sofas in Britain. Are they, are they still made there, in Britain? There is an awful lot of sofa manufacturers in, in the UK. Is um, there? Right. Yeah. So the majority of our sofas are still made in the UK. Right. Who have got, who have got problems with the supply chain and getting wood and getting foams and, and everything else? But the, the, the big sofa is still a lot of them are made in the UK and there's some huge big factories. Right. But they're working at capacity just now, just with the demand before doing up houses. Right. Um, but it's still a very, very big part of it. Um, and how does our price compare when we're buying them for China? Well, you get a more bespoke sofa made in the UK, you're picking your fabrics, you're picking your cushions, whereas an imported sofa, you're getting a bog-standard sofa and it comes in that colour and you, you don't get the, the, the choice of fabrics. So a, a lot of the, the more discounted um, retailers will, will take imported sofas. But uh, a made sofa in the UK is, is where we want to be. Right. So, Jim, in the short time you've been... You know, concentrating in this sector, the furniture sector, in your opinion, what do you think is the ratio for people turning over their, their house? Ah, so I've got a customer who has bought five sofas from me. Um, she buys a sofa every year. Wow. And she comes wandering in, she goes, oh, I really love that sofa. And then she'll wander up and down and she'll say, do you know what, just write up the order for that. So I says, what's up with the one you've got? I'm getting at my daughter. <laughs> so she just... Loves what, what do you think would be the norm? I'm sure she's the exception. Every I think, seven years? I think you're five years. Five years? Um, right. You couldn't ask my wife that question because <laughs> we've had quite a few sofas in the house. So I think five years. Um, I think the whole young couple who's buying their first house who come to us and they want it to look like a show house and that's the service we provide, I think that young couple is saying, right, five years' time, I'm selling my house and I'm starting again. Um that to me is a cycle for where it is that the, the young couples go through the, the house and ladder just now. As we emerge from the pandemic and business recovers, where do you see your business going? Is it just going to more stores opening up or what's, what's the plans? Well, to be honest, this is something that we debate every single Sunday afternoon. <laughs> I've got to a point where I like my business, I love my business, um, I love the social media side of it, um, I do not want to expand it in this climate, um, I'm fed up paying the rates, which you've led me into, so yep. the other wee moan it'll have is, how can somebody start a business in the high street paying the rates, which is the same price as his rent? I wandered through Buchanan Street last week for the first time in a year and I have never seen a street looking so tired. Sad, isn't it? It is sad. Sucky Hall Street is gone as a retail destination. Uh, Agile Street is once a 
past Marks and Spencers and before Marks and Spencers, thank God I am not running a chain of stores at this moment in time. The government must here, here. must help scrap the rules as we know it and the rates and they need to reinvent it. It's just a tax on having a store. So if you've got one store or a hundred stores, you're paying that tax and it's got to change. Just now, in Buchanan Street, if you went and took a prime site and says to one of the property companies to say, what is the rent in that? You'd be sitting about £950,000 a year for a good size store. And then ask them what the rates was. The rates would be a million pounds. So that store has got to turn over £5 million to break even. I don't want a business that turns over £5 million and breaks even. So I have no intention of opening stores. We've heard this, Jim. We've heard it from the chamber. When we've had, yeah. you know, um, M. Stewart on and you know, telling us this. So I think really that the government do have to look at this. And again, I keep saying, if the minister, if Mr. Swinney is in charge of the, you know, the COVID recovery and in relation to the economy, it's certainly probably a good time to use this crisis to have a good look at, at rates of shops. It, 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 they couldn't pick a better time to say stop. How many? Stores have closed, you know, we've all been through the programme and the consumer, the customer knows who they are. So this is a time to say we need to do something about it. And it's, it's the best time ever to say, let's rip up the book and start again. Oh, a strong message for government to end. But before we wrap up, we have a new wee segment where we ask okay. 10 quick fire questions for you. So, Jim, are you ready? Okay. Let's how would your family and friends describe you? Ah, I think <laughs> some of the close ones would say he's actually money, but he's actually got a good heart trying to run a family business. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and when you were a child, what did you want to be and why? I wanted to be a poster, um, because my dad did it and that's what I wanted to be. I end up Saved my time as a sheet metal worker. Um, <laughs> and, and, I, and halfway through, I hated it and says, right, I need to go and start my own business. <laughs> Brilliant. What's the best book you've read and what are you currently reading? I think the best book for the programme is is for a guy called Richard Sounds, um, Julian Richard, um, which is a book about how you look after your people. And through the pandemic, I think this is the time that Businesses, big and small, should be spending that bit extra time looking after people. And it's a quick book to read. I met the guy once and I put in everything in place in his book and different businesses I've been involved in over the years. Great. Now, I'll plug your favourite restaurant in Scotland and meal of choice. I think my favourite restaurant in Scotland has still got to be 29 when we get back opened. And I assume it's a steak when you're there. Always well done. <laughs> and your favourite TV programme or series? Is it going to be Blue Bloods? It's got to be Blue Bloods. <laughs> you can't beat it. That family bit. You can't uh, beat it. That's great. And the last film or series you watched, and what's your all-time favourite? I think I've got to say my best film. It's not a series, but well, it's a series. The You can't beat The Godfather, and it's still got to be there as number one. What music are you listening to? Oh, you're a bit of a groover. So, people who know me will know that I'm not very good with music, but if it's no Simple Minds or you too, I'm not listening to it. The song you love to dance to? 
Oh, sweet Caroline. <laughs> Caroline. <laughs> we, have, we have all witnessed that, trust me, that, that is an epic. What countries have you most enjoyed travelling to, whether for business or pleasure? I've got a few suppliers in Southern Ireland and, you know, the Irish are great at making you feel welcome when you go there. So we go there, well, we used to go there quite a lot, but we've got another trip coming up. Um, so we go there for two days, spend a lot of time on new product and they take you to their wee Irish bars and to me, that's me and my element. And a final question for you, a saver or a spender and how much is in your wallet? Oh, I don't know what's in my wallet just now. Um I'm no a spender, but my wife deals with that and she is a very, very, very much <laughs> a spender. She's very good at that, Jim. <laughs> That's been brilliant, Jim. Thank you ever so much. Tremendous insight. Great, great to, great to you, be Jim. here. Great to see Jim. you. Brilliant. And continued good luck. Yeah, thanks a lot. And don't forget, if you want to be part of the board you can't afford, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The board you couldn't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. We're going to our phone lines now and first up is Graham Hall of MMM Joinery Limited. Welcome to the show, Graham. Hi guys, how are you? We're all good. We're fine, Graham. Fine, Graham, yes. Good. So, tell us a wee bit about yourself and the business. A bit about myself. I served my apprenticeship as a joiner with a local authority a few years back, and then I subsequently worked with a main contractor, and they put me through university to become a quantity surveyor. And I worked within the manufacturing business for quite a period of time. And then I was invited into MMM joining about two and a half years ago. Um, we do about just short of four million pounds in turnover. Got uh, about 100 employees at the present moment in time for the Central Belt of Scotland. Wow, wow. Sounds, sounds a great success story. Yeah, fantastic. So what's your question that you want to put to Tom and Willie then, Graham? I'm very interested in, in business culture and I would love to hear their, their views on what creates business culture and how do you maintain the culture within your business? Tom? So, I think this is the number one question, and thanks for bringing it up this morning. Um, when I was growing sports division, um, what gave us the edge was our culture. Um, I very much wanted to promote the David and Goliath, it's us against the big boys, and at every point in time, people were very proud, I hope, to work for sports division um, and how do you get that culture and how do you maintain it? That is that is the job of the leader, first and foremost, is the leader of the business has got to be out there listening. And when I say listening, I mean really listening to what's going on in their business so that they can stop the politics, stop the backbiting, all the stuff that kills culture and really is promoting um this us against them, us against the world. And I don't know if you agree with me, William, but I think that was the thing that, that gave us the edge. Why are you so interested in this? The reason I'm interested in it is that um, I'm, I'm currently studying at Strathclyde University and my project is based on business culture, hence the reason for the question. Um, but I'm also keen to see what, the rituals and morals of the, the human being of you know led from from their um, mother or father the morals and principles they've been taught about life and how that cascades 
into a management structure. Graham, it's Willie here. Hi, Willie. First, thanks for calling in. And I'll tell you, this is a very up question with a conversation I've been having all of this week. Yeah. Uh, a lady wrote to me uh, a few months ago. Her name is Fiona McKee. And she's actually a HR director, or, you know, she's been the head of a HR operation in a big business. And she had this idea that most businesses, when they're bought over, they actually, most acquisitions fail because the company buying the company didn't understand the culture and the business they were buying. And she had this idea about putting herself forward as someone to the to the VC companies or whatever to say when you when you, when you're part of an acquisition that you know I can help you here. I will go in and look at the culture of the business and make sure that you totally understand it. And I thought this was a great idea, and I think she's up and running in that business now. Good. In my own experience, culture is everything. Right, if, it's very difficult if you're a PLC because things are very rigid. But if you're a small to medium-sized business, especially if you're a family business, the, the success of that will be in the culture within the business more than anything else. And your point about you know, you're at uni and you're you know, trying to see if it's in the DNA yes. or whatever, um, I think you can create a culture in a business. You know, I have, I have seen people who I would have termed as not the nicest people in the world, yep. but completely understand that they have to have a different approach to as to how they treat their employees and their staff. So you, you know, you you can adapt, but I think that you know, to answer your question, that to get a a culture where people think they're valued, uh, they're appreciated, I think in any business is is a huge um, help to that business. Yeah, um, Graham, I, I think it's fascinating that you're studying this at um, Strathclyde. How's it going there? Yes, yes, it's, it's, it's definitely been different uh, due to the pandemic and being taught online. But yeah, I find, what a fantastic experience uh, the MBA programme is at Strathclyde. I know Sir Tom supports it uh, greatly. You know, it's, it, it's, you know, I'm one of these guys that, in my life that's, that um, I seem to be a bit of, Gotten for punishment for education. <laughs> Graham, can I ask you a question? Yes. How did you adapt when you worked for the local council going to a private contractor, going for a three-day week to a five-day week? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Best thing I was handed was it was a piece of lead detected where the ban was, you know. And <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going to ask you what local authority you want, but that'll be a whole new problem. <laughs> Well, listen, I, I think it's fascinating, but you've hit on what I think entrepreneurs who are leading companies. I mean, I think back to Steve Jobs building Apple when he said, we are going to reinvent the mobile phone. I mean, there was a culture to get behind changing the world. So I think you've really got on to something. So good luck. Keep in touch with the show and um, let us know how you're getting on. Just before you go, because I think one of the things we talked off air about the pioneering work of Robert Owen at New Lanark Mills, is because it ties in quite nicely with the creating the correct culture. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Are you, Graham? Yes, yes. I, I, um, when I was listening to the show, um, you know, I was I was doing some uh, studying at the time, and I thought it was very apt. You know, back in in all the years ago, eighteen fifty six, when when Robert Owen changed the whole culture of the mills, you know, and introduced a, you know, a kind of strategy there. I think we've actually lost a bit of that in today's today's world. Um, 
think he was he was definitely a visionary at that. A visionary then, Willie? Well, Graham, I'm delighted that, that obviously you know a bit about uh, New Lanark. Um, I'm a bit of a student of New Lanark, and obviously you'll know that obviously his father-in-law David Dale, yeah. you know, was that was the driving force, and it's it's amazing that you know that you have uh, you know Robert came in as a, as a son-in-law that you two you two men who had the exact same socialist beliefs about how you should run a business. Okay. And I think some of the learnings from there are way back. I mean, people talk about Cadbury's and Bourneville and all the things they've done. David Dale and Robert Owen done it way, way before them. Correct. You know, to build houses, to build education, to, you know, a, a private health care. Yeah. You know, try to get uh, kids that are not too young. But imagine having, you know, the imagination when you are struggling for workers because you're so far outside the city that you take yourself down to the docks and you stop the ships that are coming from Ireland docked you know, to go to America and you're convincing people to get off the boat to come and work for you in New Lanark. Right, that's right. And the whole story of New Lanark is absolutely amazing and I'd have to say, if every company in the world was built on that basis, the world would be a much, much better place. Right. I think the Go Radio Show should do a great Scots, David Dale and Robert Owen. Willing. 100%. Brilliant. Sounds like a brilliant idea. Thank you for your call, Graham. Hopefully you found that useful. Oh, fantastic. Uh, it's great to, to share my point with uh, Pano and it's, it's a fantastic show. And, um, people like myself who are um, middle-aged, great advice and, and makes you think about certain elements, you know. And That's very kind, Graham, and we're delighted you called in and uh, keep in touch and let us know. Ben. Tom will certainly be interested to find out how you got on at Strathclyde. So well yep. done and, and, and good luck for the future. Good luck. Thanks, Graham. Cheers. I've got an email question now and this one's from Greg Forrest who says he's a barber and he currently has two shops going on three and he runs these shops with joint owners. I was looking to see who's the best person to ask for advice on franchising the shop and the best way to go about getting a franchise. So I'm not the best person. Um, I've never been involved in franchising. I, I understand the pros and the cons of franchising. You know, you're straight away part of hopefully a bigger business which is established, so you should be able to grow that business quicker with less risk, but you do give up some of the control. So it's, as ever, Donald, it's a give and take. Um, but I would say um, speak to Business Gateway. Business Gateway have good knowledge about franchising and um, all the various ups and downs on it, and um, good luck. Indeed. Another good question that's been emailed in, this time from Stuart Monroe, who says, I started my insurance business five days before lockdown one, the very first, uh, and it's gone well so far. His question is, what advice would you give around repaying a director's loan in terms of timescale percentage? And he says, ever? (laughs) (laughs) Tom? Well, Stuart, um, life's all about timing. So... Maybe you got it right. <laughs> I hope you did. Um, starting a business in the pandemic, you, you've, you've, you've heard me say it. I, I don't think there's a better time to start your own business because the, the world's changing so quickly and it's entrepreneurs who are going to see the opportunities in that change. Directors' loans, um, listen, I'm not the man for that. Get yourself a decent accountant who understands this um, because it's it's really important you get it right. 
It's really important you stay within all the tax laws and all the rest of it. So important. But speak to a good accountant. And would you uh, say to him that you can't say you should <laughs> never pay back the director's loan? Not good for business, would it be, Tom? Never say never. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mariana uh, Chatsara uh, from the Olive Fountain is asking a couple of questions, if I can. One, the hard work and personal sacrifice you both put in when you were self-made, you know, your self-made entrepreneurs, say it's huge. But one day you wake up and the whole world has gone in a different direction, e.g. the pandemic. How can we best deal with situations like that as entrepreneurs? Well, I guess this is one of the reasons that I I love and champion entrepreneurs is that, you know, we've, we've, we heard earlier from Jim, Jim McGonagall at the top drawer, Jim's just a problem solver. Um we heard from the lady at um, Little Chauffeur Drive. She she worked on her resilience. And as entrepreneurs, and I don't know if this is nature or nurture, Donald. Um, I don't know if it can be taught, but just that inner strength, the resilience to say, just keep going, the determination, we're going to solve the problems you get up in the morning and no matter what you're feeling as a leader of that business, you've got to put on your game face and you mustn't show weakness because your team will see it in you and you've got to have that game face on and let's go on with it. Um, and that's why I love entrepreneurs. The best entrepreneurs are resilient. You talk about putting on the game face. Does that also involve being honest about how bad things are? You know, as a leader, it's quite a tough call, that one. How much do you share to be that honest leader? Yeah, well, I remember going through the last financial crisis and, um, yeah, we were in crisis and it was really bad. And my closest team knew all the bad news, but the wider team didn't. And I didn't want them to worry. That was my worry and for me to solve. So... I put on my game face every morning. Sometimes I didn't feel like it, but you had to put it on. Yeah, I must admit, I find it sometimes difficult uh, as editor when you're, your team's journalists who ask incredibly <laughs> tough questions of you and you're like, mm, well, let's be careful with my answer here. <laughs> but they know when you're being careful with your answer because they're trained that way. Yes, I did I did watch the TV programme that followed you and the team at the Herald and I thought it was fascinating, but... Um, it was compulsive viewing, actually, and I think because of the honesty that you had to bring to um, the journalists who are inquisitive by nature. Indeed they are. Mariana's uh, second question is, will the financial consequences of the UK leaving the EU have a positive or negative balance for the UK? I think I know your answer already. Too early to say, oh, come Donald, on, would be my um, <laughs> political answer. Um I would say in the short term, it's not good news. Um, in the medium to long term, who knows? That's in our hands to make it positive. But in the short term, yeah, we've got a few things to overcome. Well, you say in the medium to long term, you don't know. Should we feel a bit more comfortable than some of the doomsayers that are saying? Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is, you know, in the short term, sometimes there's not a lot you can do. But in the medium to long term, the future is what you make it. 
And if we sit here and go, oh God, everything's terrible, then you're right. Whereas if we are positive about this and say, right, we're going to see the opportunities. I mean, we've heard from our guests on the show, there's, you either see it as a threat or you see it as an opportunity. Entrepreneurs see opportunities. Indeed they do. And talking of opportunities, uh, we plugged it last week, but I think we should plug it again. The fantastic kilt walk, Tom. <laughs> well, there are seriously only a few places left now because, um, I mean, the demand for the kilt walk is fantastic. I think just people want to get out and walk with their pals, their their um, workmates, and raise money for the charities they, they care about. And whatever they raise, the Hunter Foundation will top it up by 50%. Um, you've also got a chance of winning two brand new cars courtesy of Arnold Clark. I don't think there's anything like, like this in the world. And I'm so proud of what the Kilt Walk and the Kilt Walk team and all the Kilties who give up their time to volunteer to keep everybody safe. So hopefully I'll see you in Glasgow Green September the 26th where we can raise money for what we care about. Well, fingers crossed that you raise lots and lots of money. Uh, so far, it's been a, a, a wonderful success story. But unfortunately, Tom and Willie, that's all we have time for. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. podcasts.